there once was a man named Selin Yancey who traveled o'er the sea, searching for some golden brew to set the elves right free. But on the isle did start to crawl, he saw his trip set in. He threw the brew right o'er the side, and to home he did flee. Fill your glass with the finest air, we'll see if you dance. But if you drink the night away like me, the elves won't have a chance. The dragon turtle coupled up all the special brew. In his pursuit, Selin Yancey found a channel straight and true. The turtle drunk off his ale, crashed into the aisle, and spinning home to share his tale, Stalin Yancey flew. Fill your glass with the finest ale, and we'll see if you dance. But if you drink the night away like me, the elves won't have a chance. Our friend is a man named Stalin Yancey, who traveled o'er the sea. Mr. Yancey turned to show to a bar for you and me. If his tale be true, it's best that you keep a watchful eye, for the dragon turtle might just catch you if you drink a Welcome back, everyone, to the Drunken Dragon Turtle, just to our little booth here in the corner. Things are calmed down a little bit today, and people are resorting themselves to their various tables and having their own little side conversations, which actually is the thing that we're wanting to address today. Matt, my good friend. <laughs> yes, Fish. <laughs> what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about talking about it. We're talking about social interactions and social encounters in Dungeons and Dragons and kind of the so Dungeons and Dragons is a TTRPG so a tabletop role-playing game and one of the key phrases in that is role-playing and that's not just when you're you know playing as your character swinging a sword or casting spells and doing marvelously fantastic things in combat that also involves interacting with people because yeah maybe you just find hey go clear the wa goblin warrens quest on you know ye old uh billboard but you know you may not get the quest of hey there's a dragon pillaging our lands from the local duke or count or duchess or countess if you don't go talk to them because yeah. they may not want the public to know this is happening. So you have to have social encounters. And D&D, &D, as much as we love the game, and as much as it's been around and it's the grandfather of so many role-playing games and role-playing archetypes we have today, at its core, D&D &D was built off of a war game. And even to this day... It is still very obvious that D&D is a game of combat, not I mean, a game of social encounter. You look at the covers of the books and you're getting like the player's handbook. You have a party of people fighting a giant, a frost giant, or you have people... That is a frost giant, right? Yeah. Yeah, or you take, like, the Dungeon Master's Guide and you have Asarak there casting spells and summoning the dead. Or the monster manual, where you have a beholder chasing a party of people. You have you know. an entire... Uh, most of the advertising and most of the, the well-knownness of D&D is called Dungeons and Dragons. So you are going into a dungeon, you're slaying a dragon, 
you're getting your loot, you're taking magic items, things along those lines. And correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the social interactions in the earlier editions were simply just handled with dice rolls, right? Most of it was handled with dice rolls. You could talk to, and you would talk to a lot of people, because in the earlier editions, it was a lot more common. There's actually, I would almost argue, more social interactions in the really? first ones. And that's purely because you had to have hirelings. Because, you know, you get down to the original three classes and yes i'm saying the original three because in the little brown books you didn't have a rogue so to that original four no you had three classes the spellcaster the fighting man and the cleric or the, i don't remember what his actual i don't remember what the actual name of the class at the time was but it was like the the cleric or the faith and so you didn't have a thief to play as if you wanted to break into someplace you had to hire a, a hireling that was a thief if you wanted to carry you know gold had weight back then you couldn't just put all of your gold in a bag of holding you know so if you found a treasure hoard that was you know hey fish you and your party just found a treasure hoard worth 250 gold it's all in copper that weighs a lot. You have to carry it from the dungeon to town. I can speak with experience because my hometown of Monaco, Wisconsin is known for uh, Dr. Kate. And she was a traveling uh, doctor who would go miles on snowshoes to go deliver babies. And the town was like, we want to build her a hospital. And all of a sudden, one of the students in a class asked, because it was just a part of a lesson, how much does a million penny or how much is a million how much is a million okay how yeah. can we quantify a million let's quantify it in pennies and i always have thought copper pieces and pennies are very much alike and so you can go online and look up the uh, uh dr kate's penny like parade and you will see like dump trucks full of pennies like going down the street a million pennies is a lot so you've got 200 gold that goes down to then what because it's a baseline of 100 copper and a gold so mm -hmm. that's 200 that's 20,000 no no that, that can't be right that's a thousand uh if you every take one, 10 gold would be a thousand every 10 gold would be a thousand so geez uh fuck math that's at <laughs> least two let's look two two hundred thousand something like that yeah so you've got like 200,000. That's still more than what you would carry on your person or a bag of holding. And also I can confirm the first original three classes were the cleric, the fighting man, and the magic user. The there first we go. supplement, Greyhawk, added the thief as the fourth main class as well yep. as the paladin as the fighting main subclass. Yep. Those are, those are your original three classes. And then they added the rogue and the paladin was a subclass. Mm -hmm. So... And that was the thing, is so you're thinking you have to carry this much gold around, so you have to hire somebody, and as much fun as it would be to sit there and negotiate a hireling encounter, you have right. to remember back then, you were adventurers and heroes, not because in more modern days adventurers have much more nuanced reasons for why they do things and why they want to go and do the thing. You know. Today, it's like, 
Here, go out, and you must save the maiden of this kingdom because her people are discriminating against these people, and it's just the common oddities, and you need to bring peace to these two nations. Back then, right. it's like, go kill Mecha Hitler. It was go kill Mecha Hitler. It was the damsel in distress trope. The princess has been captured by a dragon. Go save her. You know, the motivations were a lot... Not to say that they weren't nuanced or they couldn't be very nuanced, because they, they very easily could. I mean, we're talking about the 70s and early 80s, where, right. you know, if you look at comic books and you look at, you know, the comic books people were reading at the time and how nuanced the motivations for some of those characters were, it's amazing. And yes, you would have those complex nuances of why characters would go and do the thing. But oftentimes it was as simple as, hey, go do the thing. So... While your character could easily, you know, you could sit there and negotiate with a, you know, a labor boss. Hey, I need to hire five hirelings to carry all this fucking loot we found. You know, you had two options. You could either, and in the books, you had two options. You can give them a percentage of the loot as pay. Right. Or you paid them based on per hour of work they did. And even in the fifth edition books... You have that. You have hirelings. Skilled hirelings are worth about a gold a day, and an unskilled hirelings worth five copper a day. And so you would just hire unskilled hirelings to just carry whatever you wanted. And so there was that little bit of social interaction, but it was very much just, oh, I go hire five hirelings. I go find five peasants in these fields and say, hey, I'll give each of you, you know... A gold to help me carry all this shit and now mind you it we've lost the concept of how valuable a gold is in D&D because mm -hmm. so much in D&D now revolves around the cost of gold how much does a farmer make in a month I remember you keep one gold this example ah yes that is a peasant farmers pay for a month at best they will make one gold so I say to a peasant Hey, I need your help for four hours, and I'll pay you a month's salary for it. You didn't uh, have to yes, argue sir. with the guy. It right. was yes, please. What else? Do now you, you walk to up do? to do an artisan, to... right? You walk up to an artisan and say, "I'll pay you a gold for this." You know, they might make oh. three, four, five gold a month, so they're probably not going to argue very much with you. But depending on what it is, they're going to be like, "Uh, dude, I don't do that." You want me to do manual labor? I'm a painter. Exactly. I, I paint you. I paint you. There. Done. Give me my gold. This is what I call a shagakatana. <laughs> this is my over-the-top Iyaki accent. I love your Iyaki accent. <laughs> I, th I think most of the other players in that game hate it, but I love it. <laughs> it's just the overemphasis of the air noise. Yeah. <laughs> so, and back then, you know, when you interacted with kings dukes counts and you know the nobility of the area it wasn't really until you were upper level you were not on same par footing as them right you could you know and to give you a more modern example a lot of times if you're about level if you go by the tier system right mm -hmm. tier one unless you're a folk hero you're known in like your town or the town you're in or let's say you're in a city like Waterdeep and I think Waterdeep is most comparable to what Chicago New York mm -hmm. 
Let's say New York. If you're level one to five, you're probably known in pretty well known in one borough of New York. It's you're like known in Brooklyn. Harlem. You're you're known in Harlem. You're known in the Bronx, Queens. That neighborhood knows you. Oh shit! You're in Harlem. Look, it's Luke Cage. Everybody around here knows Luke Cage. You go to Manhattan. Oh, you're that you? bulletproof guy, right? I'm, yeah. I'm not too sure. You go to Hell's Kitchen. They're like Daredevil. Daredevil only. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're known in one neighborhood. Tier two. You might be known in a side of the city. You know, if you go to Chicago, you might be known across the north side. Mm-hmm. You might be known across the west side. You might be known across the south side. No one wants to know anybody in fucking downtown. You might know that one guy on the CTA red line who's always sitting in the corner at 2 a.m. He's got some weird bandoliers on, and he's like, who wants one? Exactly. But you're known through those areas. Now, mind you, this is back old D&D mentality so this is right. first second edition then we'll talk about how those works in modern day tier three or what we would call tier three and here's the thing most parties didn't make it to tier three because they died um you might be known then across the city so if we're saying chicago everyone in chicago knows your face knows your name knows your life story for the most part or at least the stories they've heard of your life story but every single person knows who you are what you look like yeah, whether tier it's four. through wanted posters or it's through like commemorative like art that's been made in your imagery or exactly. the rumors going around about the man with the golden hair and the metal arm and leg and the man in the full suit of armor. Prick. <laughs> <laughs> that took me a second, you dickhead. <laughs> metal arm, metal leg. Oh, you must be. It's him. Uh, and then tier four, you might be known in your state. Maybe the surrounding states know of you, but everyone in your state knows who you are. So even at Tier 4, I couldn't, as a Tier 4 character back then, I couldn't walk into the White House and expect to get a meeting with the president. Right. It was, uh, yeah, I've heard of you. President's been keep, keeping tabs on you, like, uh, that the Justice League keeps tabs Not, on not you. even that. It was the president saw the New York Times that had your name in it. Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you go to the more modern 5th edition, Tier 1, you're known in your local town or community. Tier 2, you're known in what would effectively be a large city or maybe even a state. Tier 3, you're known in your nation. Tier 4, your name is globally recognized. Well, that also goes from, I think, the the scope of the the story or the ambition of the story had changed so much over the years where the original editions were a little bit more based on what can we fit into a smaller scale and then all of a sudden you get to the larger editions and people are like i want to kill the gods third edition for those wondering (laughs) was that the one where they started putting out the stat blocks of gods i have that book with the stack blocks of the gods i can convert those god stat blocks to to fifth edition very easily no i will not do that for saturday games no <laughs> i'm not fighting a god no I'm not playing a paladin no don't worry i've already converted ah fuck <laughs> social encounters so going back to you... social encounters yes because that's so where back... all of this started right uh all of our social encounters up to this point in the older editions typically were 
money based. It was I need you, I need you for this because of the amount of money I'm offering you. You most likely will not decline. And I'm also guessing not a lot of people would sit down and want to go over with the labor manager saying, "Okay, I would like to interview all of your laborers because we're carrying ten thousand gold, and I just want to make sure that you don't have any heavy-handed, or, right. uh, or like people who are gonna grab some of our things and go as we're we're going." Yeah. So, and it's just like also DMs aren't necessarily. I mean, DMs can always throw in that one tricky guy who grabs a few extra gold than necessary, but I don't think it's going to be the DM making such a big deal out of this when they're trying to just complete an adventure and go back so you, you can quickly take care of the shopping and then go on to the next adventure. Exactly. So, it got. So how does this translate to fifth? So then you come to 5th edition, and again, D&D is still a combat-focused game. And if you ever need proof of that, just look up the social interaction. How, how many pages the social interactions section takes up in Chapter 8? A little bit over two pages. Two pages out of how many? Like 300? 400? No, Monster DMG? Manual is like 350. Um, I had Monster Manual memorized at one point. It was like 320 pages. Okay, so out of 320 pages, only two are dedicated to social encounters, whereas... And even that, it's not a lot. Yeah, like, a lot of them are given to combat encounters, how to create a monster, how to, like, create a dungeon, how to do all these separate things. There's a lot more attention paid to the combat-oriented stuff rather than what the DM would need to pull a role-play encounter out their butt. Yeah. And here's what I will say, is they do note that there are several ways to approach a social encounter as a DM. You know, it does state directly that some DMs prefer to run a social encounter as a free-form role-playing exercise where dice rarely come into play. Other DMs prefer to resolve the outcome of an interaction by having characters make charisma checks. Either works, most games fall somewhere in between balancing player skill with character skill. Um, but that's really... It and then you have the resolving and that that's it and then there's the resolving interactions and you get three starting attitudes friendly different or hostile. Then you have a conversation. You play out the conversation. Let the adventurers make their points. Try to frame their statements in terms that are meaningful to the creature they're interacting with. They might change the attitude temporarily, either friendly to indifferent, indifferent to friendly, indifferent to hostile, hostile to indifferent. And very rarely will it go all the way from hostile to friendly. But unless you're like. I hate you for many reasons. Here's a million gold. I can be your friend now. Exactly. Um, but yet, it basically just says, DMs, here's the three separate sections of NPC possibilities for these. Yeah. And then you have, you know, determining the, the, the NPC's characteristics, basically just figuring out what's their ideal, their bond, or their flaw. And players can try to use that to determine how they should approach the conversation. And then you have the conversation reaction. So you have the in, you have each attitude, the friendly, the indifferent, and hostile. And then you only have three different DCs for each. You have a 0 DC, a 10 DC, and a 20 DC. And, like, that's it. And it's just a charisma check that the party chooses to make either persuasion deception or intimidation and it's you know just just reading down like let's just take the indifferent because let's 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 admit a vast majority of npcs the party's going to interact with are going to be indifferent to them they're not really going to give a shit so you're indifferent dc if it's a dc zero check 
That means the creature offers no help but does no harm. You roll a 10 around that. The creature does as ass as long as there's no risks or sacrifice. Uh, a DC 20, they accept a minor risk or so, or sacrifice to do as asked. So minor. What's a minor risk? Minor risk. Uh, I might break a bone. Minor uh, sacrifice. That, that, that really depends on the person, though. If you have someone who's like someone who works for a living and if they were to come down with an injury and not be able to work that could affect their livelihood so let, let, let's put a let's put a gold value to to that then let's say a minor risk is like i might lose like a gamble five silver okay so it's not a full gold it's still like half a month's wage if you're a farmer so for a farmer, it's significant. But if this was, let's say, a skilled laborer or somebody, that's not a huge risk. That's minor, yeah. arguably minor. But then you've got, you know, the hostile, who you need a DC-20 for them to help you, period. Um, And that's with no risks or harm. Right. Um, Where the zero is... I oppose your actions, and I'll take risks to fuck with you. Mm -hmm. That's three. <laughs> you know. Whoopsie. And then, you know, you have the friendly who, on a 20, accepts significant risk, like the loss of their life, to right. help you. And here's the thing, is through that whole section, they give you some advice on how to roleplay, how to you know, become the NPC... And that's it. There is no mention of XP reward in the whole social interactions thing. Now, you can go down to the experience point section in chapter 8. And, you know, it's two paragraphs long. What page Paragraph is this one. On? Huh? What page is this on? Uh, Just in case people want to be able to follow along at home. It is on page 260. And what about the charts we were just talking about? Those are on page 244? This is all in the DM's, like, workshop, right? Yes, 244. It's all in Chapter 8, running the game. Okay, so for those of you wanting to follow along, there you go. Page 244 and then page 260. So, it's two paragraphs long about experience points. The first one is you decide whether to reward... Uh, character experience the characters for overcoming challenges outside of combat. Or sorry, this is the non-combat challenges. The experience point section is quite large. Uh, it takes about a page, you know half a page to a page. Experience points XP fuel level advancement for player characters and are most often rewarded for completing combat encounters. Now they put that caveat most often because then they do talk about non-combat challenges, but for the most part, you gain a majority, if not all, of your XP. By interacting with monsters, by killing them, by routing them, or by capturing them. You will ward that XP. All XP is in the monster manual. Right. Then you go to the non-combat challenges, and you got two little paragraphs about it. Here's, here's what they say verbatim. You decide whether to award experience to characters for overcoming challenges outside of combat. 
If the character has completed a tense negotiation with a baron, forge a trade agreement with a clan of surly dwarves, or successfully navigate the chasm of doom, you might decide that they deserve an XP reward. Now, mind you, that sounds like social interactions and skill challenges. Paragraph 2. As a starting point, use the rules for building combat encounters in Chapter 3 to gauge the difficulty of the challenge. Then award the characters XP as if it had been a combat encounter of the same difficulty, but only if the encounter involved a meaningful risk of failure. So you're not going to get full XP in a social encounter unless there is a stake equivalent to the combat encounter that would have ensued? Right. And now some of these combat encounters are life and death. Your party walks up to a green to a bronze dragon and want to talk. You piss that bronze dragon off, and if you're level five and it's an adult or an ancient, you just became lunch. Yeah, I would say that's a significant threat. So if they were to say talk their way out of this, now that does raise the question though. So DM sets up a plot point, right? Yeah. DM says, okay, you need to get MacGuffin. In order to get MacGuffin, you have to speak to NPC. NPC is not of the best, uh, um, uh, what's the word? Your uh, demeanor. They're not of the best demeanor. Uh, right. You may have to convince them. They go over there, and they're talking with the person, and they succeed. Now, because the DM intended for this specific NPC event and was not planning on combat with this NPC. Does the person get the experience from that with the risk of failing being combat? Do you see what I'm saying? See, that's the thing, is you wouldn't give... I wouldn't give double XP for that. You would just get the XP for the combat. So you would just get the XP for the combat with the NPC. But as the book is saying, you would get half of that if yes. combat wasn't on the table. If combat wasn't on the table, you would get half of that XP, maybe. So, if a party in a session, all they accomplish is they traveled, they finished maybe one or two random encounters, pretty straightforward, you killed a few goblins, here's the goblins experience split up, now handed to you, you now go up to the boss, and the boss was not a combat encounter, but hey, let's have tea and talk. You're not going to get any experience for this that you would for a normal boss. Without some sort of significant cost behind the failure. Right. Okay, I think I understand that. Right. So again, it just kind of reinforces the idea that if you're not playing for the kill, you're in trouble. Something along those lines. So it turns D&D into a much deadlier game. And now mind you, this is the DMG. First rule of the DMG is... These are guidelines. You don't have to follow these as hard and fast rules. Same could be said for the monster manual and the descriptions in there. But that's an entire f series we could go into. <laughs> yeah. I can say I have met a good many people who have started with the 5e system and have created their own game using the 5e rules. I have a friend who made a Pokemon Mystery Dungeon campaign using fifth edition and the rules easily became 
something that was just like a suggestion to keep them on the right path. Yeah. So it is possible to completely ignore certain rules. But if you're coming into this with no mindset at all, if you're fresh, like most people are, going into TTRPG with D&D, you are not going to know, unless you're an actor or someone who spends a lot of time role-playing, you're not going to know how to run these encounters as a dungeon master. Right. So you're going to want to fall back onto charisma checks, which, as someone who is doing research with charisma, if you are... If you're a dungeon master and you are sitting down with a party and you are gathering expectations of, okay, what is everyone wanting to get out of this game? You have a session zero, like in Tasha's Cauldron Everything suggests. You have a mm -hmm. session zero and you say, uh, uh, person A, what do you really like? Well, I really like smashing heads in. I play D&D &D for combat. Okay, you play for combat. What about you? I play to have politics. I play to go through all this thing. Now, person A is most likely going to end up with a martial melee class, and all of their class features are going to be based around combat. If they roleplay, it won't be extremely ability-reliant. It'll be very much what they bring into the session outside of their character sheet-reliant. Whereas the person who wants to be political most likely is going to take up a bardic class of some type. If they take up a bardic class, they're going to get bonuses to their charisma. They're going to get a lot of different things that help them in these social situations which if you go back to that table prior the dc only goes to 20. Right. from experience running social encounters and running lots of role play in my games i think that a hard difficulty of 20 when you have a party with a bard that's only feasible until maybe level five that's yeah. only a feasible like this is a very hard difficulty and the fact that they don't go any further than that it kind of leaves dungeon masters a little a little flummoxed uh, there is a nice little chart on the uh, dm screen that shows like the difficulty classes in terms of like how difficult how they and they have like 40 as impossible they have 35 as like very improbable like they have all of these different things but if you're a, if you're a dungeon master looking at the social encounters like how the hell do i do this and you see 20 is the hardest and you have a bard who's got like a plus 13 to their roles just because they have expertise and persuasion your your role play is going to be very dice reliant because the person took up the skills in it specifically to be able to be good at this thing exactly so that's that's one of those things where you can tell that this game is definitely oriented more towards combat than it is towards role playing because there are more uh, rule-wise loopholes that can be exploited in this way. Exactly. Not even talking about how you can just exploit AC with a paladin. Exactly. Whereas the paladin can get up to, what was it, a 34 AC with the right tools? Uh, with the right combination, you can get to a 32 walking around AC and in combat 45 AC and a situational 50. So you can get that amount of AC as a paladin, just imagine what you can get with a bard. When I was checking on a forum, I specifically saw like the highest roll you could get with persuasion was 60. Yeah. Which is something the game doesn't even tell you right off the bat. The highest number that the game really goes with, I think, with... 30. You can go a you can go above 30. 
because if you're a rogue and you have stealth and you have all these different things like pass without a trace well even then i don't think the game intentionally is like hey you can get a 40 with a nat 20 a plus 10 from pass without a trace and then a plus 10 from all these other things yeah but i think that's like the only non-magical item non-class feature non-any of these things like hunting wise if you are playing a ranger you can easily get a 40 with pass without a trace and expertise in your stealth so again the game is built towards combat encounters and that's kind of one of the weaknesses of the game and then there are other games out there and you know we're not going to talk about other games very often because again we are primarily a DD podcast DD is our home it's our favorite game but then you have games like the white wolf series of games the world of darkness that have a lot of social interaction built into the necessity of the game where combat can happen but combat is deadly to the players at it all has times consequences it's not like uh you are a trained paladin and all of a sudden a demon walks up and you're like ah i've trained my whole life for this it's you are a kid with a stick and this literal wolf is walking up to you you can either back away from the wolf or choose to fight the wolf you're a child with a stick what are your chances against a wolf very poor exactly so it just becomes very but then you you sit down and you watch like critical role or all the other live cast podcasts out there and the social interactions are some of the most memorable moments of the game the way people talk to each other i think just thinking about our saturday night game or the friday night games we'd play nine times out of ten the the awesome oh my god i can't remember you remember when this happened and it was so funny those didn't come from combat encounters those came from social interactions and most plot twists come from social interactions rather than the dm just being like plot twist this happens exactly it's through those discoveries how how can we fix social interactions in D&D. I think right now we are seeing we are seeing a large influx of brand new people wanting to play D&D and we have a a wide variety of different people wanting to. There is a good majority of these people joining who are joining D&D for the social interaction and to kind of get their their feet wet, so to speak, with a, a new group of people. A lot of people are socially anxious. A lot yeah. of people aren't going to be comfortable role-playing to begin with. I know uh, our, our druid, Chomsky, when he joined the Saturday campaign with us uh, in the beginning, I had to almost practically train him to be comfortable with role-playing and with talking to NPCs rather than just saying, I would like to persuade. And it, it happens. If you're new to this, you're going to want to rely on your dice rolls. And it also depends on what you define your session as interested. But a lot of people are now going into D&D with a a critical role mentality. And critical role is amazing. And it's wonderful to watch and be a part of. And I can understand everyone wanting to aspire to uh, have a game exactly like that. But the the idea that D&D inherently is this role-playing heavy game is false. Because the reason you have live cast shows that are so roleplay heavy and so wonderful is because before anything else, they're an improv group. And they are comfortable with picking up something, setting it down, and then trusting someone else to pick that thing up, add something, and set it back down. Right. And not just have the DM pick it up, 
put it back down. Someone picks it up, looks at it, brings it back to the DM who adds more to it. And then it's like a back and forth where the DM is putting everything in there. Yeah. And really social interactions, in my personal opinion, are best when everyone is willing, even if they have a character who doesn't have stakes, everyone is willing to at least put a foot in for a moment to add to it rather than take away from it without interacting at all. You know, I think we're moving closer to a more balanced social encounter, combat encounter game. Do I think we could ever move to a full social game? Probably not. I think there's a lot of players that would not have fun with that, and that's fine. Especially with all of our classes being so combat-oriented. Yeah. It would be nice to see a few more classes begin getting some class features that... Focus a little outside of combat, allow them to maybe use different stats in some of their social skills. But we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. I can say, uh, out of all of the combat classes, you've got... Or I'm trying to even look at all of these uh, quote-unquote so, like social subclasses. Right. And they're not even like entirely social. social. A lot of them are more ability oriented and a lot of people there's from what i've been reading there's a distinction online of people who people who will invent things that are not on the character sheet and then people who will invent things because of what's on the character sheet so you have a paladin who has okay i have these lay on hands abilities i am going to play up my lay on hands with i'm going to role play or communicate being like a field medic I run over, I grab my friend, and I drag them behind a rock, and I say, don't you go, as I'm placing my hands on the wounds and forcing my divine essence into that to close them shut. Like, that is a paladin playing a paladin. But yeah. if you're taking a paladin, and uh, they're like, I want to come up with something off the character sheet, with something they don't have on the character sheet. I want to be defined by something not on my character sheet. I will grab a, a rope that I have trained myself in and I'm going to lasso my friend and pull them behind the rock to keep us both here as I'm doing yeah. something. Two entirely different approaches, but one of them roleplay oriented because of an ability on the sheet and then another one because they want to be creative with something off the sheet. It's just the entire social encounter or the, the roleplay encounterness of the game is so open-ended that a lot of dungeon masters can get lost in how to go forward with it. It is easy to get lost going and figuring out how to go forward with it. Um, and I think it's just going to take time and, you know, watching other people do things and how they do them that'll help reinforce to you, the listener, and even, you know, how Fish and I approach social encounters and how we interact and how our, you know, NPCs talk or do things. Because you know, everyone loves a, a great role-played NPC. But sometimes it's almost better to have great role-play and social interactions between the, the party. And all that just comes with time. It all comes with time. And I think the, the biggest, biggest absolute takeaway from this is Dungeon Masters, it's not all on you. If someone wants role-play they will need to bring it just as much as you are. 
all of the roleplay is not reliant on you because it is extremely taxing if you are trying to roleplay and people are not reciprocating. It's the equivalency of showing up at improv and saying, look at this great apple I have. And everyone says, no, that's an orange. Yeah, it's very difficult. And you will find your ways and we'll try to revisit this multiple times on different occasions and at different points in time to see, you know, as new supplements come out and how you can roleplay some things a little bit differently or a little bit better. Absolutely. So I think that that wraps up our, or at least the first part of our social encounters or our role-playing kind of aesthetic to D&D. But as always, I'm Fish. I'm Matt. And you are always welcome back at the Drunken Dragon Turtle. Cheers, my friends. Grab a drink and let's have fun.